Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2? And this morning we'll be looking at verses 23 all the way through to the end of the chapter and then the first six verses of chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the last two of a sequence of five controversies and conflicts that we see stitched together at the beginning of Mark's gospel and the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. We see those five controversies, again, as we've been looking through. Beginning at the uh, beginning of chapter 2, we see Jesus heal the paralytic and pronounce that his sins are forgiven. That's something that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus says that he can do that. So that's controversy number one. Controversy number two, uh, Jesus calls Levi, this tax collector, and then he goes and he becomes friends with Levi's friends who uh, are not exactly the most reputable group of people, tax collectors, and what the world would classify as sinners. And again, the religious leaders are not thrilled at what he's doing because he's spending time with these people uh, that they think he shouldn't be spending time with. So that's controversy number two. Controversy number three we looked at two weeks ago, a question about fasting. There was these doubts about Jesus and his disciples. Why weren't they fasting like the other guys? Were they somehow uh, less spiritual than them? That was controversy number three as Jesus uh, confronted their religiosity and their traditionalism and their legalism. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at conflict and controversy number four and five, both relating to the Sabbath. Again, controversy number four happens in a field. Uh, that's going to be chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And then controversy number 5 uh, happens in chapter 3, which happens in a synagogue, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Once you've found Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is God's word, whether we stand or whether we sit, but it's a good reminder for us that God's word is holy, it's distinct, and it's his word that has power. So let's hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? They were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him 
how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Just like we saw in the last passage in Mark, the last controversy that we looked at, uh, the law and the rules that go over and above the law had become elevated to this point where it was no longer good news. These rules had become something that said you simply had to be good enough. You had to attain a certain level of piety or righteousness, and then in that way you could be accepted by God. Do this tradition or that tradition, and you're good to go. Well, as we considered a few weeks ago, tradition in and of itself is not wicked. But when tradition turns into traditionalism, when it becomes the means by which we think God will accept us, it becomes legalism. And it's literally the opposite of the message of Christianity. As I read the passage, did you notice the high emotion in this passage? We're tempted to maybe look at this passage and kind of wonder, what does this mean? Is this just kind of some uh, religious kind of secondary bickering? Well, there's pretty intense emotions that we see uh, unraveling in the passage. In verse 5, look at the way Jesus is described. It says, and he looked around at them, that is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And then in the very next verse, we see, and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is no mere, uh, you know, religious debate club. There is high emotion happening here. And we rightly need to ask the question, why was Jesus so angry at what they were doing? And why were they so angry at what Jesus was doing that they wanted to kill him? We can understand disagreement, but to want someone dead over it? Well, to answer that question more fully, I want to ask two other questions, questions that Jesus asks about the Sabbath, and I want us to think of those questions more broadly, thinking about religion. Is religion meant to be a blessing or a burden? And is religion meant to do good or to do harm? Now, I would imagine if we went person by person through this room, we would get a broad spectrum of answers to those questions. What do we make of religion? And certainly, if we then extended that survey beyond to your family and your friends and your coworkers, I know you can imagine the broad answers we would get. And I think the reason for the broad answers would be because we might not all be talking about the same thing when we say the word religion. What do we mean by religion? Let's work with a definition of religion so that at least this morning we're talking about the same thing. Let's think of religion as the service and worship of God. Okay, I don't know if that's the perfect definition, but that's the definition we're going to work with. The service and worship of God. And we can insert that definition then into those questions that we're asking this morning. Is the service and worship of God a blessing or a burden? And is the service and worship of God meant to do good or to do harm? I think that refines our question a little bit. And I hope that you think the answer is obvious. This is exactly why Jesus is so angry, why he's grieved over what's happening. Because service and worship of God has been so distorted here 
that it's become a burden and a refusal to even do good for others. Gifts from God became a mechanism for crushing legalistic burdens. And so let's look at those questions in turn. First, is religion meant to be a blessing or a burden? Is religion meant to be a blessing or a burden? Again, these two stories, as we look at the story in the field and the story in the synagogue, are both about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. For the Jews, it was uh, Saturday. This, this day, the seventh, the last day of the week, the seventh day, where uh, we had this God-ordained rest that's laid out for his people. It's a gift to his people. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh, rest. In God's design, he saw fit to build into the very fabric of creation the need for rest. We aren't meant to be laborers who just endlessly produce until we drop dead. Now, boys and girls, you may not like the concept of resting or quiet time or napping, but there, there will be a day that comes in your life where you will wish that we had a mandatory nap or rest that was built into our daily schedules even. We see that God cares about his people. And so again, right into the fabric of creation, God stitched in rest. He didn't need to rest. He's all-powerful. But even in creation, before the fall, before the fall into sin, he made and modeled a rhythm of work and rest for his people. Later, in the Mosaic Law, this was ironed out with a command uh, that God's people would work six days and then rest on the seventh day, setting that day apart as holy, a day to be honored, a day that's distinct. They were to refrain from work, and this was a gift to God's people. But over the course of time, as people looked at this day that they knew, okay, the fourth commandment, we got to you know, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, we, we aren't going to work on this day. But over time, people added more and more rules to more tighten in and define what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Eventually, there ended up being 39 types of work uh, that were distinguished and defined as work uh, that was forbidden to be done. You couldn't walk more than 2,000 steps. Uh, you couldn't get your steps in. Uh, you couldn't pick food and eat it while you were out getting your steps in. Uh, you, couldn't, uh, you could untie a bow, but you couldn't untie a knot because that was too much work. Uh, if someone's life was in danger, you were allowed to help them. Uh, but if it, this wasn't a critical life or death situation, for example, if someone had a dislocated shoulder, you had to leave it uh, to reset it the next day. There was all these rules that had come in place to try to map out what is work, what isn't work, what's kind of work. Well, let's just be super careful that we don't break the fourth commandment and let's add in all these very specific rules. In our passage, we see what looks to be at least two of these categories of work being broken by Jesus' disciples. They obviously are out and about, and so we can assume that there's some traveling going on. They're probably exceeding the, the step count for the day. And then we see that they're picking these heads of grain. Now, to, to pluck food and pick food was actually legal. If you were going through someone else's crop, you weren't allowed to just 
you know, get the combine out and go harvest their crop, uh, that would be stealing. But you were allowed to pick heads of grain. You were allowed uh, to do those kinds of things. And a lot of us might love the thought of that kind of rule as you walk by, you know, someone's raspberry bush or blackberry bush or something, and you think, oh, these are fair game. That's kind of, it's built right in to the law. There were provisions for snacking. Now, already, we have this mandatory rest, legal provision for snacks. A lot of us are thinking, bring these laws back, right? These are good things. But either way, it was the Sabbath. And so even these plucking heads of grain, you couldn't do this on the Sabbath. That was work. And so here we see an accusation in verse 24. It says, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They go to Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher of his disciples, and they confront him. Now, what they're doing here, we could look and kind of say, oh, this is kind of old school, nitty-gritty, pharisaical law-keeping. But I think it's more popular than we might think. There are all kind of situations where we would look at these 39 types of work uh, that have been added in, where we too, or even historically, we could look at the church and say, we've added in lots of laws and rules to maybe even with good motivation to try to protect ourselves, right? We could think of gambling, okay? Gambling's not good. We shouldn't gamble. But that led to, you know, some churches saying we can have no playing cards. We're not allowed to play games with cards because what if it leads to gambling, right? Or, okay, drunkenness, very clearly forbidden in Scripture, uh, but that led to some saying, okay, well, that means we should just strike all alcohol because what if it leads to drunkenness? Now, there may be some wisdom in some of those things, and certainly the motivation is good, but we need to be very, very, very careful because the second we let tradition or practices, man-made rules, get to the level of scriptural commands, we are in a dangerous place. No matter what rules, preferences, or traditions we're talking about, even if the motivation is good, even if there is wisdom in it, if these things become means by which we think God will accept us, we completely distort the gospel into something dangerous and something false. And so what Jesus does is he replies appealing to something they'll care about. They obviously don't respect his opinion on things, uh, but he gives them a past precedent from Scripture. He says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. That's the key word there, because that's what they accuse him of doing something that's not lawful. Uh, for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus gives them a past precedent from Scripture. Now, there's one confusing bit. This is just a bit of an excursus here. People love to look at this passage. If someone tells you there are errors in the Bible, a lot of them will go to this passage, okay? So this is just a little excursus for us to think about. In that section where it says, in the time of Abiathar, Abiathar was not the high priest in this scene that we're looking at. And so some have said, well, that must be uh, an error. Either Jesus made a mistake or, you know, Mark made a mistake, or someone made a mistake along the way. Well, we can look at the words that are there, and I think the simplest answer is probably the simplest answer. It says, in the time of Abiathar. Abiathar was the most well-known high priest during that era, also played a key role in King David's reign. And so it wouldn't be strange at all for Jesus to reference this high priest and kind of saying, hey, in, in the era of, you know, 
Abe Lincoln. You could kind of do it in that way. You kind of, it gives you a historical pinpoint, a place to kind of get your bearings. So anyway, there you go. If you want to do more study on that, you can, you can definitely do more study on it. There are a lot of pages written on that exact verse. But what Jesus is doing here is less about talking about the high priest. He's talking about this past precedent. He's talking about David, who is in need. When he and his band of brothers were on the run from Saul, and they were desperate. They needed food. And so what they did was not lawful. They ate this bread of the presence, this bread that was reserved for worship that only the priests could eat. Uh, but they went in and did this. And, and nowhere is David condemned in Scripture for this. They step outside of uh, the legal uh, realm here, but nowhere is he condemned. And what Jesus is doing here when he's confronting the Pharisees, and especially with a pretty salty comment at the beginning when he's saying, have you never read what David did? Of course they've read what David did, right? Of course they've read. They, these, guys, these are the Bible guys. So he's saying, have you never read what David did? He's pointing out their double standard that, of course they've read. But in the case of Jesus, they missed the point. They are willing to excuse David, this respected king, uh, and give him a free pass. But Jesus, they have no time for even though Jesus is the new and better David, the one who would come from David's line, the true king, the king of kings, and yet they fail to and refuse to see Jesus for who he is. And so Jesus points out their double standard. And then Jesus gives a very clear answer to the question of what we're asking about the Sabbath and broadly what we're asking about religion. Is it meant to be a blessing or a burden? In verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the answer to our question. The Sabbath was made for man. It was given as a gift. It was meant to be a blessing, not a crushing burden. And then almost immediately after here, in verse 28, Jesus drops a bomb. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now we've run into that title already once through the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man. That's back in chapter 2, verses 10, when again he has another mic drop moment on the religious leaders. He says, uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the paralytic is healed. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority. He's saying, only God can forgive sins, but I want to show you that the Son of Man who Jesus is talking about himself, self-distinction, right? which is a term that points all the way back to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. He's saying, this is me. I have the authority to forgive sins, something only God can do. And then here, we see him talking about the Sabbath. Well, who is in charge of the Sabbath? Not these religious leaders, but God. God created it. He instituted it. He ordained it. He defines it. And Jesus says, so the Son of Man, a.k.a. me, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this is what we see Jesus do. This is who we see Jesus is. Jesus is not simply a good man. He's not simply a prophet. Right? The prophets speak on behalf of God. What do they say? They say, thus saith the Lord. Well, what does Jesus say? We see him throughout the gospel saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Or he'll say, you've heard it said, but I say. This is a new teaching with authority. 
These claims are impossible to ignore. What Jesus is saying about himself here, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This kind of claim, we can start to get a picture. Why do these guys want him dead? He's making a big and bold claim. As C.S. Lewis points out, you have to make an assessment of Jesus. Either he's a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Either he's making this up, uh, or he's confused, or he's actually who he says he is. He's actually the Lord. And this is why they want to kill him over this. They hear exactly what he's saying. Jesus isn't simply coming in and ruffling feathers, trying to split hairs on religious distinctions. He's making a claim about who he is. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And so that's a far grander term. That, I mean, that's the big idea from this passage, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That's far more than just simply saying he makes the rules about the seventh day of the week. This is saying he is Lord of this creation ordinance, this thing that God has given, a gift to his people. He is making a big and bold claim about himself. And he is willing to call out this hypocrisy and the legalism that he sees around him. Right? They call him out. They're, they're seeing what he and his disciples are doing, and he doesn't put up with it. He's saying, are you kidding me? You have no right to take something I made a blessing and turn it into a burden. The Sabbath was made to be a blessing, not a burden. It was made for man, not man for it. Religion, as the Pharisees define it, was a burden. It was not a blessing. But Jesus flips this on its head. If religious practices, whatever they are, are the service and worship of God, Jesus says they are to be a blessing, not a burden. That is Jesus' answer to the first question. So that's question one. What about question two? Is religion meant to do good or to do harm? And we see the religious leaders have their eye on Jesus now, right? There is some confrontation happening. We see this in verse 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And these guys are just out to get Jesus now, right? I think it's helpful to realize, too, Jesus doesn't try to destroy or downplay or cancel the Sabbath. Right? He's even going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's not saying anything about the Sabbath being obliterated or anything like that earlier. He's saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying he's Lord over the Sabbath. But he's not trying to just wipe this away. But here, he doesn't wait to be questioned. He doesn't wait to be prompted. Jesus calls out the hypocrisy, this false religiosity. And again, we see Jesus' disdain in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He is flying in the face of this traditionalism and this legalism. He said, are you kidding? You've so distorted service and worship of God to be a time to refuse to help someone because we're so afraid of working. And they have no answer. But the irony of what Jesus is saying here is 
uh, and why he's so angry and calling them out is they're not only refusing to do good, right? They're, they're looking at him and saying, we're gonna trap him. We're gonna see him do something good on the Sabbath. How dare he? But when he, he ramps it up, he doesn't just say to do good or to do harm. He says to save a life or to kill. And as we read this passage, we might say, who's, who's killing here, right? Like, what's he getting on about? But there's an irony and a direct confrontation here because he knows what's going on in their heart. He knows what's happening in verse six that they're holding counsel on how to destroy him. Right? Not only are they refusing to do good, they are plotting how to destroy Jesus. For them, the Sabbath is a time to do harm and to kill. Now, of course, anyone can, in the name of religion, do harm. And historically, we see it all over the place. But I need you to hear this today. Don't miss this. Jesus is not indifferent to this, this doing harm in the name of religion. He hates it, okay? He hates this thought that, that religion would be something that people would use to do harm. Listen to what James writes. We could go lots of places here, but listen to what James writes in James 1, through 27. He writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he uh, looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Pharisees were so entrenched in their forms of religion that these forms of religion had become ultimate. Whether it was fasting, whether it was Sabbath rules, it was the metric by which they thought God would accept them. What a horrible religion that is. And what a horrible religion that we so easily turn Christianity into. When we do that, Christianity loses all of its distinctiveness. Everything good about the gospel gets lost. Because the amazing truth of the gospel, literally good news, is that we're not saved by what we bring to the table. We're not saved by simply being good enough. If our hope is built on our good works and our rule-keeping, hoping with absolutely no certainty that God will accept us because we tip the scales, you know, just ever so slightly in our favor, I don't know about you, that is not good news to me. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus invites us to be credited with his perfect record, with his perfect law-keeping. He lived the sinless life that we could never live, that we haven't lived. And he died the death that you and I deserve as punishment for sin, punishment for our sinful rebellion. And he rose in victory over death so that we could be made right with God. This is the point of the passage. It's less about Sabbath uh, rituals. It's, it's all about how is man made right with God. There is a false way to try to be made right with God, a burdensome rule following that has absolutely no chance of actually saving you, or 
the blessing of trusting in the one who did keep God's law perfectly and offers that perfect record to be credited to you. That's the core of Jesus' message. He says, and we've seen him already say this explicitly, repent. Turn away from your sin and believe. Turn to Jesus and trust in him for salvation. He is the only way to salvation. If you're here this morning and you think that you know, all religions are basically the same, I would encourage you to talk to the person who invited you, come talk to me, or grab, there's a little booklet I would encourage you to take on that table over there. It says, it's called Two Ways to Live. And I want you to read that as a summary of the Christian message and see the uniqueness of the Christian message. You may reject it, but I can assure you there's no message like it. And if you're going to reject something, you at least need to know what you're rejecting. Don't fall for this false religion of working yourself to salvation. But I hope you don't reject it. I actually plead with you, don't reject it. But even in the final verses of this passage, we get a description of three different types of people that I would see, in a way, responding to Jesus. Three different types of people. The first is the Pharisees. We've already talked about them, their rigid rules, their hopeless legalism, their inflated egos. They completely miss the gospel. Their hope lies in their own merit. To quote Tim Keller, this kind of religiosity says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I obey, therefore I am accepted. And you may be tempted to say, that sounds like a Christian thing to say. But it's actually the opposite of the gospel. Christianity, the gospel, says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Do you hear the difference? Okay, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. No, I am accepted, therefore I obey. God does call us to do good, to show mercy. But it's not our goodness that saves us. We have nothing to boast in in our salvation. And so the Pharisees hate Jesus, because he doesn't fit into their religious mold, their religious box. To the Pharisees, uh, the law was the way that you become made right with God. But what the law actually does, what it actually does for us, is it reveals who we are. The Pharisees miss the point. God's law is like a, a CT scan or an MRI machine. Is that what the MRI machine? Uh, I'm not a medical expert, which that'll be revealed quickly. But God's law is like one of these medical diagnostic machines. It exposes the truth of who we are. God's law is meant to expose our need. And the Pharisees' goal was to add all sorts of rules and regulations that allowed them to trick themselves or trick others into thinking that they were actually righteous. Right? But that was no more effective than figuring out how to outsmart the MRI. It may save you some short term bad news of the true diagnosis, but it doesn't actually do anything to help you. This is what dead legalistic religion gets us. It tricks us into thinking that we're healthy when we're actually spiritually dead. And like the Pharisees, if all your hope is built on practices or traditions or religion, we will hate and reject the grace of Jesus. Because we simply have no category for how good this good news is. 
But interestingly, the Pharisees aren't alone in their rejection of Jesus. Look again at verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians don't come up a ton, uh, as we will read through the Gospel of Mark, but the Herodians were supporters of King Herod, uh, the Herodian dynasty. Now, what's fascinating here about the Pharisees seeking out the Herodians is they are not friends, right? They, they aren't on speaking terms, right? They're not buddies. They're not chumming it up. You know, the Pharisees and the Herodians, just a bunch of bad guys getting together. They are not friends. The Pharisees are pro-Judaism, right? They are pro-Jew. The Herodians are keen, and, and they like the Greco-Roman influence, and they're supporters of that. That may sound small to us, but the division could not be wider. It's not small at all for them. If the Pharisees are the conservatives, the Herodians are the liberals. If the Pharisees are the fundamentalists, the Herodians are the uh, progressives. They both think they're right, but they couldn't be more wrong. The Pharisees think that they're so much better than those around them because of their rules. And to quote Tim Keller again, he, the progressive outlook would be, uh, from the Herodians, we are so much better than people who think they're so much better than other people. Right? Do you hear the futility of that? We know this outlook. We see it constantly, right? We hear this. I'm tolerant of everyone, but I won't tolerate an intolerant person. Right? It's, it's futile. There's, uh, both positions are incredibly self-righteous. The pride of both of these worldviews is common enough ground, though, for them to team up against Jesus. Two groups who wouldn't ordinarily talk to each other are agreed, and so the proverb holds true that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we can think of both kinds of people in our society. Uh, we can think of both kinds of people even when we look at churches that unfortunately claim to be Christian churches. But if we're honest, we can find all of this by simply looking in the mirror. Even as we read passages like this describing the Pharisees, be careful of thinking how much better you are than them, how much more we have it figured out, how much more freedom we have than these guys who are bound by rules. We are as lost and blind as the fundamentalist and the progressive apart from the grace of God. Which introduces for us a third response. I want to consider this man with a withered hand. Now we don't know his background, we don't know his heart, but at a minimum, the story of Jesus healing him is a perfect illustration of God's grace. Because this man does not fix himself. He obediently comes to Jesus. Jesus calls out to him, and I wonder what he was feeling in that moment. Do you think he was feeling embarrassment? You know, even in a room like this, probably not many people would want me to just point at them and say, stand up, come on over here. Let's, I've got an illustration I want to make. Right? You probably would not be thrilled at the prospect of that. Was he embarrassed? Maybe he was fearful. He understood the stakes of these you know, Pharisees who were sitting in the corner with their scowly faces uh, who are going to want Jesus dead. Maybe they, he was worried about uh, them hating him for listening to Jesus. But what's stunning about what Jesus invites this man with a withered hand to do, do you notice he says, stretch out your hand. He calls this man to do the one thing that he can't do. He calls this man to come up, and, and he could have said, you know, spin in a circle three times, or I don't know, jump up and down. He could have said all sorts of things, but he doesn't. He says, stretch out your hand. He calls him to do the one thing he couldn't do on his own, 
yet he does it, and his hand is restored. Now, this is a picture of what we know and what it means to be saved by God's grace. We could never do it on our own merit, be restored to God. What we could never do, he's given to us. God calls us to repent and believe, something that's impossible for us to do with our dead, withered hearts, just as impossible as this man with a withered hand would be for him to stretch out his hand. But by God's grace, we can. What a contrast that is from trying to earn salvation on our own. It couldn't be more opposite. It's seeing the report that comes from the MRI and it's coming to Jesus, the physician who came for the sick. It's finding rest for our weary souls. And this is the kind of rest that we find in Jesus. Jesus came to make things new. We aren't bound today by 39 types of work that you need to be afraid of, just this slavish fear about the way you conduct your day of rest. We have freedom in Christ, but I want to suggest to you that you be careful not to throw out the Sabbath baby with the old covenant bathwater. Because we are finite humans. That has not changed. And there's a wonderful reminder in this passage that the Sabbath rest is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the religious form may have changed, but the function remains. We today are chronically busy. We, as the psalmist says in Psalm 127, uh, it's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Our refusal to rest declares our self-sufficiency. I need this reminder often that if I can't or I won't take a day off, I simply proclaim that I don't trust God and his provision enough. And we may need to redefine rest. We've never had such a cultural emphasis on leisure and recreation, yet we've never been so overworked and burnt out. Could it be that in our liberty of freeing ourselves from this rigid Sabbath, we've ignored our need of and the gift of rest? Could it be that what was once normal to worship on Sundays and worship multiple times on Sundays has been thrown to the wayside and that has come to just further waning of the church? We need to think deeply about physical rest. I heard one of one therapist who specialized in helping people who were on the edge of burnout. At the first meeting, he always prescribed the same thing. He said, I'll see you again in two weeks. Go home, sleep eight hours every night, do whatever it takes, cancel anything in your schedule that prevents you from sleeping eight hours a night, and take one day off per week. Not even a whole weekend. Take one day off, one in seven. And he said, for those who actually follow those things, he has almost no repeat clients come back two weeks later. That isn't to say burnout isn't real, it's dangerous, it's chronic, but it is to say that maybe we need Sabbath rest more than we think. And this looks different for different people, but flee from the hustle culture that's all around us. 
Because to quote one comedian, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Right? Maybe more poetically, listen to this blog post by Ray Ortland. He says this, let's not dictate Sabbath observance today. The point of the Sabbath is a dress rehearsal for a future eternity of glad rest in God. So for now, every one of us can work out the details personally. But in our frantic modern world, the Sabbath offers wisdom that has lasted since the beginning. It is not written into our calendars as much as we are built into its calendar. It seems to be a part of the God-created rhythm for weekly human flourishing. If we did set apart one day each week for rejuvenation in God, we would immediately add to, our, uh, every, add to every year over seven weeks of vacation. And not for whatever, but for worship, for community, for mercy, for an afternoon nap, for reading and for thinking, for lingering around the dinner table with good jokes and tender words and personal prayers. How else can we find quietness of heart in today's crazy world? If anyone has a more biblical and more immediately beneficial place to begin, I'm open. But raising hermeneutical objections to the Sabbath principle doesn't in and of itself help any of us. I wonder if the very concept of the weekend is biblical. It seems to me that the weekend turns Sunday into a second Saturday. Home Depot may gain, but we lose. It turns Sunday into a day to catch up on what we didn't do Saturday or a day to ramp up for what's ahead on Monday. If we accept the concept of the weekend, we risk fitting God in rather than centering our every week around him. We risk living soul-exhausted lives and wondering why God isn't more real to us, why we're exhausted and grumpy. If we want to find our way back to the quietness of heart and reality with God, the first step might be simple, bold, but simple. Maybe we should put him first in our weekly schedules, not fit him into the margins of our busy weekends, but build our whole weekly routine around him, just a thought, end quote. And this touches on the fact that we exist for two types of rest, friends. Physical rest, yes, but this passage is about more than a day off. It's about genuine rest for your soul. To some, Jesus gets in the way of re religious legalism. But to those who know him, they know that in him is where true rest is found. There's no need for anxious toil. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, satisfied in his good creation. It was good. At the heart of it, that's what Sabbath is all about, satisfaction. The most amazing truth that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath is not just that in his infinite wisdom, God knows that you need physical rest, but in his infinite kindness, he gave his own son, the Lord of the Sabbath, to be your Sabbath, to be your true satisfaction, and to restore your withered heart by his grace. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are struck again about 
the glorious truths we see in Christ. We confess how quickly we slip into dead religiosity, a religion that becomes a burden, and a time where we see it as a wrong to do good. God, we thank you that there's a better way, that you and your kindness have made it clear of our need for physical rest, but God, more than anything, We thank you for the glorious truth of spiritual rest that we can know in Christ. We thank you that we can spend our days worshiping with our brothers and sisters, fellowshipping with one another, and we may be physically tired at the end, but we are spiritually filled. God, we thank you that you have made us in this way. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Christ for who he is, that we wouldn't settle for religious practice that offers us no hope. God, if there's anyone here today who's striving and working to try to earn their righteousness, to earn a right standing with you, God, open their heart to know that there's a better way. True rest can be found in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.